echo in the room today. <laughs> Good afternoon. I'm Carl Lengel, and this is Louisiana Considered. On today's Louisiana Considered, we'll hear from Paul Braun just a few minutes from now. I'll give it about 10 minutes or so. On today's special session in the legislature. Up first, though, Delvin Davis is author of a new study from the Southern Poverty Law Center detailing racial disparity among Louisiana sheriffs and prosecutors. Delvin joins us now to tell us a little bit more about this study. Delvin, thanks for taking some time with us today. Yes, thank you for having me. Let's start with the numbers. How many sheriffs and DAs are there in Louisiana overall? And what's exactly the racial breakdown here? Kind of in what areas of the state did you see more diversity than others? Yeah, so there are uh, 64 sheriffs and 42 DAs, so 106 people in total that we looked at. Uh, as of late last year, only four black sheriffs and only five black DAs. So 6% of the sheriffs and 12% of the DAs are African-American in the state of Louisiana. Uh, that, that compares to 33% of the overall population for, for Louisiana. Uh, so we see a lot of uh, racial disparity there in, in, in terms of uh, who's in leadership in law enforcement in the state versus the people that they serve. And, uh, and what areas of the state, the diversity, was there a stronger diversity in any other? I think the uh, Orleans Parish, um, they have a uh, pretty strong reputation with African-Americans in leadership there. But as far as the state as a whole, um, we look at pretty much every parish all across the state for for everyone that's a sheriff and DA. And uh, overall, I think there's a, a history of uh, the disparate nature between who's in leadership and in, in, uh, law enforcement versus who they represent. Okay, we started with racial makeup as the first question, but it was not just uh, the racial makeup of law enforcement. It was also gender makeup. How many sheriffs and DAs in the state are women? So there are five DAs that are women uh, as of right now, and only one sheriff uh, that is a woman. Uh, that would be uh, Sheriff Hudson in, in Orleans Parish, uh, which, which would be the only and uh, the first uh, black woman to be a sheriff in the state of Louisiana. That, that seems like a remarkably low number, considering that 51% of the state's population is female. But what do you think are the reasons for this? Well, I think a lot of this is systemic. Um, this isn't a new issue or a new um, phenomena. White people in leadership is something that is uh, pretty prevalent across every state in America, not just in Louisiana, but also if we consider that these are elected positions, Louisiana as a just like every other state in the South, uh, also has a history with um, prohibiting Black people to vote, uh, going back to even post-Reconstruction where we have poll taxes and uh, things like um, grandfather clauses and things like that that were intentionally uh, designed to strip the Black vote of its power. And uh, the Constitution at that time also had the prohibition of if you're not able to vote, you're not able to run for office. So if black people are not able to be eligible to vote, that also means you can't be eligible to run for DA or sheriff or any other elected position. So with that as the, the backdrop of our history in Louisiana, it puts white men in a position where they are the expected dominant force in, in politics and in uh, leadership and law enforcement in particular. 
Going back to the racial issue, the makeup of prisoners in the state is majority African-American. Can you kind of talk about those numbers a little bit? And uh, this has got to be a problematic display, I'm guessing. And, and no, this is for a state that is currently number two, uh, ranked number two in the nation as far as their incarceration rates. In previous years, they were, were ranked number one in, in, the, in the country. But as far as jails in Louisiana, uh, 65% of people incarcerated in jail are African-American. 57% of prisons are made up of Black people. And, and that is, for, for jails, that's a 283% increase between 1983 up to 2019. And uh, for prisons, that's a 118% increase between 100 between 1983 and, and 2022. So uh, so not only has it been racially disparate, it's been a, at a pretty stark increase, uh, going at a fast rate over uh, the past couple of decades. This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel. We're speaking with Delvin Davis, author of the SPLC study, Out of Balance, Racial Disparity Among Louisiana Sheriffs and Prosecutors. Thanks for joining us again, Delvin. Your study looked specifically at the story of Katya Rashad, a Louisiana activist who gained widespread attention for advocating for local law enforcement reform after the death of her grandson in Iberia Parish in jail there. Tell us a little bit about that story, what she sought to change about local law enforcement, and was there any impact from her efforts? Yes, so we, well, first of all, we're very grateful for her story sharing it with us because it really frame the story in a way that is is humanizing for the people that are directly impacted by law enforcement. Her grandson was arrested for something very minor and nonviolent uh, for back child support that he owed. Was in the uh, Iberia Parish jail for a couple of days and come to find out that he died in that jail. The family has for a long time tried to seek answers. Um, They were told that he had taken his own life and it's you know very questionable if the if that's actually the case or not. Um, the family still has has doubts about if that's the true story. But regardless of what happened, the sheriff of that jail has the the charge of keeping everybody in that jail safe, and that was not the case for uh, Mr. Shaw's grandson. So so ever since then, uh, they've been trying to seek answers. They've gotten answers that were not really sufficient for them, and and not having the kind of transparency. Uh, needed from uh, a leader in law enforcement there, it, it really hurts with the healing process. It's also necessary for her and uh, everyone in that family. Um, that person was part of a community there uh, in that parish. And every time a person is you know, unexpectedly or suddenly taken from your community, uh, there's harm done. So, so that's just one case of uh, many, many cases you can draw from pretty much any parish in, in the state. But, but that is one particular story that uh, just kind of stood out there. Another part of the study looked at what you labeled as unchallenged authority of law enforcement in Louisiana. Can you explain to us why exactly the officers have so much power and authority and how that trickles down? And is there a way to check that? Yes, as a reminder, all of these positions are uh, elected officials. So the primary way or a primary way to hold these people accountable is through the ballot box. It does not always happen if uh, the person that is running for re-election is running without any kind of term limits and running unopposed most times in their particular parish. So it's incumbent upon the people, the community that is seeing what's going on in the, the courtrooms or the, the jail. Are they satisfied with their law enforcement leadership? And is there a need for a change? 
So it's, it's a comment upon the community to register to vote, uh, to educate yourself about who is in leadership in your parish, and also um, engage with your leadership, um, ask them questions about how do they feel about racial equity, racial disparities, and things like that, uh, especially the ones that are as blatant as the ones that we see in our research and uh, numbers that keep Louisiana as a whole as the second highest incarcerator in the United States. So without the kind of accountability, really nothing will change about the status quo that we have. You mentioned at the beginning, this is certainly an issue that has been in history for a long time. So it's hard to be optimistic about it. And the study reinforces a lot of what is not very hopeful. Do you note a rise, though, in diversity? Let's take, for example, in law enforcement in Orleans Parish since maybe the 1980s. What did you find there specifically? So Orleans Parish, um, uh, they have in recent years elected some leadership there with their recent DA and, and now Sheriff Hudson as the sheriff. Some people that have run on some reform-minded agendas, again, they are uh, pretty new in their offices. So it's, you know, when you're dealing with something that is systemic and cultural, oftentimes it takes time to uh, dismantle some of the old things and old ways that you, know, you have inherited and endowed something new. So um, we're being hopeful and patient that they're in there and have enough time to really implement a lot of the reforms that they have run on in their campaigns. but. But there is some hope there. Um, uh, D.A. Williams, um, he has done some things to uh, really look at some of the convictions that were from previous administrations and uh, looking at the racially disparate nature of, of, you know, should we review some of these convictions? And also Sheriff, Sheriff Hudson, she's done some of the same about, should we take a different approach to law enforcement in, in terms of how do we view this jail? Uh, how do we care for people that are in it? So, uh, so again, given the newness of these two offices, we're hopeful that there's uh, at least the potential for change, but also recognizing that it's going to take time for it to really uh, take hold. One of the counter arguments would be, well, in Memphis, we just had this horrible incident, and it turned out that the members of this elite force were all of the same color as the person that ended up dead. How do you counter that argument that it's going to make a difference in the way people are treated? I would argue that the you know diversity it does challenge culture in the way that the people that have built up and maintained um, police brutality and very harmful cultures within law enforcement over the years, people have created that. And if you want to change the culture, you have to change the people. Now that isn't a a perfect fix. But, you know, I think even with people of color in law enforcement, it, it does take time uh, because it did take a lot of years, a lot of generations to build up the system that we have. Um, and even so so strong that even African-Americans that are in that, that same system can perpetuate a lot of the same cultural harms that uh, were there before they got there. So a cultural change just takes patience, I, I would say. And um, diversity and being patient with diversity uh, is probably part of that that solution. And kind of looking ahead to the future, if we're able to see more people of color, more women in these sheriff and DA roles, what kind of a vision is that for us? And so we propose that uh, diversity is uh, one piece of a larger puzzle. We, we wouldn't say that diversity by itself is uh, the silver bullet or cure-all to uh, erase all of the racial disparities with the jails and prisons that we see now, but 
but we do have to look at where the, the, the status quo is, how do we get here, and is diversity at least one step or one component to the larger system, uh, given enough time to uh, allow it to create change. Diversity is one part of a larger thing that breaks the status quo. So I think diversity has, um, in other uh, areas and other states, it is shown to have some positive impacts, uh, namely having fewer uses of force with law enforcement and also having um, better outcomes as far as sentencing and who gets plea deals and things like that from the uh, DA's offices. So so with that said, um, having diversity, at least promoting it, and having people that are more accountable to the people that are from a very diverse population that Louisiana has, uh, that at least could be one step towards towards change. Delvin, thank you so much for your time today. Yes, thank you. That was Delvin Davis, author of the study Out of Balance, Racial Disparity Among Louisiana Sheriffs and Prosecutors. I'm Carl Lengel. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. Louisiana's lawmakers' special session on insurance is underway at the state capitol. On Wednesday, the House of Representatives passed a key piece of legislation that Insurance Commissioner Jim Donlan and legislative leaders say, well, it could possibly ease the state's ongoing property insurance crisis. Capital Access reporter Paul Braun joins us now on the latest developments. Paul, thank you, first of all, and let's start off by quickly recapping the issues at hand. Tell us what the leading proposal would do. Yeah, hey, Carl, thanks for having me. Um, So in in the years and months since 2020 and 2021 hurricane seasons, we've seen here in Louisiana nearly a dozen insurance companies either collapse or start stop writing policies in the state, And, and those companies... Uh, you know, that was for a lot of reasons, but the main one was they were overwhelmed by a surge of claims after hurricanes Laura or Ida or were unwilling to take on the risk of new policies in coastal Louisiana, where the ever present danger of powerful hurricanes is heightened by climate change, of course. So the absence of those companies has now sent homeowners flocking to Louisiana Citizens Insurance Corporation, the state insurer of last resort, and enrollment there has bumped up above 125,000. That's the highest we've seen it since Katrina. So Commissioner Jim Donilon and his allies in the state house say the quickest solution is to inject about $45 million in cash incentives into the insurance marketplace to attract new providers to the state. And he says this will have two effects. One will be to pull policyholders directly from the citizens' roles and get them back into the more affordable private market, which also lessens the state's exposure to risk during an upcoming hurricane season. And two, it would lower rates across the board by bringing more competition to the marketplace. And as he said, lawmakers in the House passed this legislation on Wednesday um, to do that. And it, it got through on a 90 to 8 vote, which has it clearing its biggest hurdle that we anticipated during the special session by a pretty wide margin, as you saw. I'm guessing that, you know, they entered this session. There's probably a lot of questions about this approach. Has the debate around the bill played out? How has it played out so far? Yeah, I mean, it hasn't been particularly well received by lawmakers, um, but folks have really just gone along with it. They've just taken their opportunity to beat up on Donilon and the insurance industry at large a little bit in this process. Um, There are understandably lots of frustrations from uh, constituents of, of lawmakers in South Louisiana who've been dealing with insurance companies dragging their feet in the aftermath of these storms when it comes to paying out claims. And then we've seen a lot of frustration from folks in North Louisiana who don't have to, you know, deal with, with hurricanes 
Uh, it's not an existential threat up there, but the rates still in the state have kept climbing because of the enhanced risk on the coast. And uh, and folks in the northern part of the state are frustrated that they're having to shell out tax dollars for a problem they don't necessarily see as theirs. So, you know, there's been a lot of, of back and forth on this. Um, but ultimately, you know, the proposals uh, and the need to do something, anything uh, during this very narrowly tailored special session has prompted folks to just sort of go along with this and, and sort of see where that puts us. Have we seen significant changes to the bill? Yeah, so amendments on the House floor required that the grant recipients would take at least 25% of their new policies directly from the role of citizens, depopulating that state-run insurer of last resort is the number one goal of this program. And there is some precedent for that working. We, we saw the similar program after Katrina was successful in depopulating that program. So that that addition of that requirement um, should help along those lines as well. We also saw a nod to the folks in North Louisiana uh, with some other amendments that were geared toward improving the quality of the insurance services brought in by this incentive program, uh, particularly when it comes to, to folks in North Louisiana. It added Oh, we're breaking up just a little bit. I'm gonna let's try it again here. Uh, just that last sentence or so. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, the provisions added on the House floor, in addition to getting more folks directly off citizens, would also prioritize grants for companies who provide wind and hail coverage outside of hurricanes, which is a much more pressing need in North Louisiana, where tornadoes and severe thunderstorms are much more of a factor than hurricanes are on a daily basis. So what do you think? It's You think it's going to get up, ended up getting funded? Uh, yeah, at this point, the outlook is good. The biggest pushback we saw for this bill came from the House. You know, ahead of this session, House Speaker Clay Schecksneider himself described this as a, a Band-Aid for a much larger wound, but he was still able to, you know, whip the votes and bring folks around. Senate leaders have been far more sympathetic, uh, so it faces much friendlier odds from here on out. Uh, Bill's due in committee, I guess, this afternoon. What's the rest of the session? Yeah, Senate leaders say they expect to bring it up on the Senate floor Friday afternoon, and that means we could see this session wrap up early. The official deadline is Sunday at 6 p.m., but with only one agenda item and no other legislation filed, lawmakers will most likely call it a weekend after Friday's anticipated vote. Paul, thanks a lot. We'll hear more from you, I'm sure. Anytime, Carl. Take care. It's carnival season. Parades are ramping up. Uh, still some recovery from the pandemic. Parade security is an issue. Crew delusions, usual position, got altered a little bit. Let's uh, talk to the mystery voice at Crew Delusion to find out more. Thanks for taking some time with us today. So let's talk just a little bit about the Crew Delusion, the background, the history, where this all came from. Crew Delusion started when a number of people that were in parading organizations were looking for a way to come together and get on the streets. And we were told uh, that um, because there's a tradition of one parade following another, that we could follow uh, the first parade of the evening on that Saturday night, Crew de Boo. And that is where we spent the first 12 years of our, of our existence. This year, we got moved to Sunday, and it will be our first time parading uh, on our own. It's interesting because the city celebrating all of the major crews being able to return to their original routes by using these post-certified officers um, to to supplement the NOPD and sheriff's department in, in you know protecting public safety and providing logistical support. 
but crude illusion was moved from Saturday, where it's been traditionally uh, for 12 years, to Sunday for reasons that we have not yet been able to get the New Orleans Police Department to articulate. We asked what the specific public safety concerns were. We, we were not able to get a definitive answer on that. The Sheriff's Department said that they would be able to ameliorate any public safety concerns that the police had, but that was not sufficient. And then when Endymion came out with this announcement that they were going to be able to return to their uh, route, um, we asked, can we use these post-certified officers? And we were told, no, these officers are only allowed for, quote, Mardi Gras, unquote, crews. Um, but we're not asking for the same subsidies, but we don't understand why we couldn't have used the post-certified officers to maintain our traditional night the same way that the other crews are being subsidized to be able to maintain their traditional life. Let's talk about this weekend, though. You're, um, we're back up full force. Tell us what's going on with that. So as a part of our mission to save the universe, Crew Delusion has since its inception put the green in purple, green, and gold by using these mule-free and fossil fuel-free hand-operated floats. Uh, we forbid the use of uh, the traditional beads that get thrown from the larger crews, and we encourage uh, all of our revelers to uh, make handmade DIY throws that are crafted from either naturally abundant or recycled materials. Uh, um, the parade's going to be led by the Roots of Music, and then the next thing you will see uh, is our ruler, Benny Jones Sr., uh, founder of the Dirty Dozen Brass Band and leader of the Tremay Brass Band. And he had Saturday night off to be our ruler, but Sunday night he has a regular gig at the bar called DBA on Frenchman Street. So in one sense, our parade is just going to be the most grand royal ride to a, a performance that a musician has ever gotten. And then behind them are our inner crews. We have the Alcruists, which are a group of people who came here uh, to help us in Katrina and stayed, fell in love with the city's offerings, and we're looking for a place to join uh, our carnival offerings. Next uh, will be the crew of Mayowell, which is a Mexican crew that also does a Day of the Dead parade. Crew to Jew might wander in there a little bit. Um, we have a group called the Anne Boleyns, the Weather Girls. Uh, joined us for the second year. They uh, they have uh, Margaret Orr as their icon and queen. A new group parading with us, the Mad Hatter, a group called the Crew of Conus, the Mystic Crew of Conus, formed around a giant art piece that was put into a pothole in New Orleans, a, a giant eight-foot paper mache uh, traffic cone. And the name Conus is, uh, is uh, somewhat uh, similar to the name of another Mardi Gras crew that once existed. Uh, then we have a group called Crew Lidoscope, which is our most psychedelic and amazing sound bonanza of lights and colors. And then bring out your cans to the Transformers, which is an interactive recycling group that comes out with us. And instead of throwing to the audience, they collect recycling materials from the people that come out and participate by watching our parade. Bring out your aluminum cans to them, and our parade wraps up with the baby dolls. Our 10th anniversary ruler, Lois Andrews Nelson, uh, wanted a living legacy of there to be a baby doll queen every year. So this year, uh, it's Queen Anita, and she'll be uh, leading, leading the mahogany baby dolls down the street. So give us the details of when this is going on so folks can bring the family out Sunday. 6.45 is our kickoff time, and we will parade through the Marigny rectangle and triangle uh, into the French Quarter, do a little loop around. Well, we certainly hope Sunday goes well for you. We have quite a show, and I believe that we certainly have 
the most uh, delusional parade at all of Mardi Gras. That was the mystery voice from Crude Illusion. Thanks to our guest today, Delvin Davis, our reporter Paul Braun. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Dumholtz. Engineers Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Purcell, and Thomas Walsh. Major support for Louisiana Considered is provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. With additional support from Southern Strategy Group, take us out, Professor.